So, reset part two. Um, tonight we're going to look at a, another example of why it's important to pause every once in a while and examine some areas of our life and just make sure that we're doing the right things for the right motivation because it's very easy to get tangled up and find yourself going through the motions, which will guarantee you nothing. So let's pray and then we'll study together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity. Your word is always beneficial and profitable. We pray, Father, that you will through the power of your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and use this scripture, use this evening, use this time, redeem it for our good, Lord. We recognize the evil of the days, the temptations that we face to, to drift away or to get preoccupied, Lord. Give us clarity tonight as we spend these moments together that it would be fruitful and profitable for your kingdom, that our lives would bear witness of our desire to grow and be more like you. We thank you in advance for what you'll do for each one here, for all the ministry that's going on around this campus. Thank you for all the work with our students and our children and all of them. Lord, we're grateful and thankful for all the, uh, all the gospel ministry fruit that's being, the seeds being planted, the fruit that's being bore. We give you all the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we could say things, true things, simple things like following Jesus is simple, is simply doing whatever he calls us to do, no matter how seemingly radical or simple and mundane it appears to us. There's a true statement. You know, what, what do I need to do? Obey. What do I need to understand? Obey. Just obey what you know. Obey. Do, do what you know God's called you to do. Don't worry about the things that you don't know. Well, that's true. But what we want to do in this series is we want to take moments and we want to we just have a reset. You know, at times we all need a reset to ensure that our, that our efforts to fan the flames of discipleship are pointing to Christ's likeness rather than a cultural counterfeit. You know, if you were, let's say you were one of the 12 disciples, you, you spent three and a half years together with the other disciples, and, uh, you know, when it comes down to the end of Christ's life and he's in the upper room having supper with the disciples and he exposes that one of them will betray him, they have no clue who it is. They have no clue. That the, the, the great villain of the New Testament is somebody who went right under the radar, the people that were right around him. You think about Judas. He was, he was called to ministry the same way as the other disciples. And in Luke chapter 6, he was exposed to all the teaching that they heard, he heard the same things. When Jesus sent the disciples out to do ministry, Judas participated and came back with the same report of the power that he experienced and the great 
blessing that had happened. And even at the end of his life, Judas experienced a, a time of sorrow and regret over his uh, failure, over his sin. But he wasn't repentant. So the point is, is that, you know, we need to be, uh, we need to be wise and recognize that uh, one of Satan's not going to come. You're, the, the snare set for you is not going to be some giant, glaring, absurd uh, blasphemy. Probably not. What it's going to be is just a diversion to keep you busy doing something that, you know, like a few Sundays ago when I talked about making a good thing uh, the, the, the best thing, the most important thing. It's a disaster. So let's look at Proverbs chapter 6, where the Lord gives us this list of six things he hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And he talks about haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Well, it's interesting how that list begins, that the first thing on the list is haughty eyes, or really the, the literal word there is arrogant. And I want you to think about how arrogant eyes, what are they? They look down on others. God hates arrogant eyes that look down on others. And when you start to think about, well, what does that mean? Let's dive into that. Let's think about how do you, you don't just wake up one day with arrogant eyes. You, you follow a path to get there. There's a layer underneath that. And you can't get there. You can't look down on others without succumbing to the curse of comparison. It takes comparison in order to get to arrogant eyes. Because you can't, you, you, you have to uh, do this comparison game, this evaluation game in order to get to the point where you're looking down on other people. And when you think about comparison, the most heinous form of comparison by far is spiritual comparison. Because not all comparison is bad. Another thing that I've preached on recently, which is usually found among the people who think they love God the most. The worst possible form of comparison is the comparison that happens among people who would profess to love God. That's the great danger. Spiritual comparison. Why is spiritual comparison so much worse than any other kind of comparison? Because, of course, we can't live life without comparison. We need comparison. There's lots of areas of life where, you know, it's... it's perfectly fine. But what, what is it about spiritual comparison that makes it so absurd and so dangerous and even deadly? It's the fact that think about what happens when you're making spiritual comparison. You're comparing what you can't see with what you can't see. See, there's two things none of us can see clearly. We can't see someone else's heart, and we 100% can't see our heart. And I wouldn't say, 
I wouldn't say you're, we're probably more blind to our own heart than we are to other people's heart. They're both invisible and we can't see them. But believe me, my heart is the hardest thing for me to see. And it's the same thing for you. And that's what makes spiritual comparison so dangerous. The absurdity of it is in the fact that we can't read hearts. We cannot read hearts. We don't know. We're dealing with such limited information. There are so many things that we don't understand. There's so many things that we don't, uh, we're not privy to. It takes a great deal of um, assumption and, you know, you're filling in all kinds of blanks that you have no clue about in order to do such a thing. Now, look at this passage of Scripture out of Luke 18. Notice the audience. This is Jesus speaking. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, this is great because this is a, a direct parable dealing with spiritual comparison or haughty eyes. And so here's how Jesus dives into this. He says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, here's what's interesting about this short parable. When you read these verses, what you realize is there's no indication that the, the tax collector made any changes in his life before coming to the temple or as a result of praying leaving the temple. You got to think about that. No change. He came in. And left the same way, the only difference is Jesus said he was justified. He came in a tax collector, a tax collector, he went home. Yet surprisingly, God heard his prayer and he went away justified. The Pharisee, on the other hand, lived an exemplary life. I mean, you look at these verses and you think to yourself, my goodness, Look at how zealous and, and disciplined he was, yet his prayers were ignored all because he looked down on other people. Now, there is a very strong warning here that, listen, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of you are, you know, you, you, you swim up close to this reality, but you just, it's just, a, it's a problem for you. Because you, you just don't understand what, what, this, what I just said. It just doesn't make any sense to you. Because none of us in this room tonight is going to identify with the tax collector. We're not. Most all of us are going to identify with this other person. 
I mean, you're in church on a Wednesday night. But the bottom line is we got to beware of anything that makes us feel superior to others. Anything that makes us feel superior to others. So there's clearly this great danger because we have examples in Scripture of people who were seemingly did the right thing and were counterfeit. So that's a warning. Then we have direct teaching right out of the mouth of Jesus uh, that clearly would show us, boy, things are not always as they seem. We've got to be careful. We shouldn't judge a book by its cover. We need to really be thoughtful about this because it, it's fraught with danger. And so this is a great place for us to have a reset. And it's, it, it's really it comes in the most shocking way because when you think about this issue of having arrogant eyes that God hates, how does this happen? How do spiritual people, how do, how do people like me and you get lulled into having arrogant eyes? I mean, we're not talking about the world out there. We're talking about us. Well, Scripture and obedience are the bread and butter of spiritual maturity, right? Yeah. No... No, uh, no shocking information there. No scripture and obedience. Those are the two things that combine. We have there's there's other ingredients that would come in to to make this cake of discipleship. But those are the two main ingredients. Yet. What God intends to make disciples can also be used to make Pharisees. You think about the one who walked away and his prayers were ignored. Ignored. What's more shocking? That, that the tax collector made no shift or change and walked away justified? Or the Pharisee you know, you, you see, our way of thinking is, wouldn't Jesus give him some, you know, credit for effort? Don't we give ourselves credit for effort? I mean, we look, at, we look at around the world and go, I mean, look at all the people that don't even try. At least I try. Don't we say that? Yeah. I think we've ought to be careful. We've got to be careful because the same things that go into making a disciple make a Pharisee. Not all the ingredients, but it's the same main ingredients. So here's, here's what I think it comes down to. Two things about these two ingredients, which is really what I want to talk about. And the first one is how we use the Bible. How do you use the Bible? I always wonder, what do you do with what you learn here? What do you do? I'm way more interested in uh, what 
the people who hear do with what they hear than I am in who's hearing. I'm curious, what do you do when you, when you learn things, when God convicts you, when, when He opens your eyes to things? What, what do you do with that? How do you use the Bible? And then the second one is how we interpret our obedience. Which springs out of the first one. How we interpret our obedience. So let's talk about the Bible first. Now there's probably a lot more. um, uh, There's probably a lot more ways I could illustrate this. I'm just going to give you the basics. In other words, the main ones that come to my mind. Okay? The first one is. Using the Bible as binoculars. Learning, studying, reading, memorizing, participating. I mean, you're interacting with the Word. You're having quiet times. You're, you're in a D group that you're, you're you know, involved in where you're studying the Scripture and having discussion about it. You're in community group. You're in church. You're engaging with it. But all these things that you're learning, you're using as binoculars. What do you do with binoculars? Binoculars are used to see things outside of you. Using, we're tempted to use the Bible to see the faults of others. We see what's wrong with other people. We even... Even people who use the, the Bible as binoculars sometimes, because, um, you know, you can use it in a critical way or you can use it in a seemingly helpful way, but they're both just as perilous and wrong. In other words, the person who uses the Bible, you know, in a critical way, well, obviously that's wrong, and it, we're immediately you know, repelled by that because they're always pointing out all the faults with everybody else and always, uh, you know, I mean, there's few things in life that are less um, warm and welcoming than a critical spirit, right? But what about the person who uses the Bible as binoculars in a seemingly helpful way? So what they do is they love to be the, the, the helpful person for you to come to and to get advice from so they can tell you how you should do this or how you should do that. Or, but here's the problem. The problem is it still is a complete misuse of the Word of God because I have no ability to help you with any truth that I haven't ingested, that I haven't filtered through my own life and my own heart and my own consciousness. I have to eat it before I feed it. That's how that works, or else it has no power. It's just words. And so what happens is it sounds, it can sound, it can sound smart, it can sound wise, it can sound helpful, but it's not. And what you find is it sounds really good, 
But when you go home and, and apply it, you realize that that person's advice is really not helpful. And the reason it's not helpful is because they're giving you advice to something they, they really don't understand. It doesn't mean that somebody has to have lived through the same thing that you've lived through in order to speak life into that situation. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying in order for me to utilize truth correctly, I have to have experienced that in my own life and heart. And here's the thing. It's not a problem if you're devoted to studying the Bible the correct way. In other words, I know the Bible is not for binoculars, and so I don't ever use it for that because that's not what it's for. But there are people, maybe some of you, maybe people that you interact with, who every time they read the Bible, they're reading it as binoculars. That's how they read it. And why? You say to yourself, I don't even understand why somebody would do that. Well, sure you do. Sure you do. You, you People do that for one thing because it avoids the discomfort of looking at ourselves. If I read the Bible and I'm thinking about other people, well, then it's not slapping me around at all. I mean, it's enjoyable. It's not painful. It's not slaying me. I'm not bleeding. I'm not mortally wounded. But when you read a, a passage of Scripture and you're applying it to yourself honestly and, man, like it's it's. It's painful, isn't it? Yeah. And the other thing is, is that, it, you know, I don't want to look at myself, but then also if, if, if a person has a lot of insecurities, a lot of self-esteem issues, a lot of feels, well, then you're going to study the Bible, use it as binoculars so that you can weaponize it against other people so that you can feel better about yourself. Because if I can put other people down then I can feel better about me and I don't have to do the hard work of looking at who I really am and dealing with the problems that I have, right? And so that's the reason people do this. It's very common. And these, oftentimes these are people who come across as the most Bible-knowledgeable people. They know a lot of Bible verses. They know a lot of Bible information. But it's all just head knowledge. And it's, it's binoculars. See, um, it, it's so terrible because doing this reveals a total disregard for God's work, for the purpose of the Bible, for the meaning behind the things that you're learning, uh, supposedly, and that you're sharing with other people. And... The person who is, is doing this, although they have Bible knowledge, think about it, because think about who else has excellent Bible knowledge. Yeah, Satan. You think about, has all this knowledge, but basically what they're saying is that uh, they believe that the gospel is insufficient because it, it can fix other people's problems, but it can't fix mine. Yeah. 
See, any goodness that I know of in me, any goodness, anything good that comes out of me, I know is only because of the work of Jesus in me. That's the only way that it happens. So if he doesn't do work in me, then nothing good's coming out of me. It might sound good. It might look good, but it won't be of any good. It has no power. It won't, it won't change anybody. It won't ultimately help anybody. It'll just be empty. And when I grow and you grow, what we experience when we grow spiritually is God's graciousness to bring that about in us through the, the, the right approach to truth. Because if you approach the Bible the wrong way, it's just words on a page. Just words on a page. There's a lot of lost, unredeemed Bible scholars, Bible professors who are lost. So... Think about, think about this, that when I scoff at the behavior of another person, I'm using God's gifts and sacrifice to slander his creation. That's what's happening if I put other people down. If I use the word of God to point out the flaws in other people, I'm using his gift to slander his creation. See, you remember the passage in 1 Corinthians 4, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why? Why, why would? Because, see, if I'm critical of someone else, if I'm, if I'm getting wrapped up in spiritual comparison, and I'm putting someone else down, then I'm making myself better than them. On what basis am I better? Whatever, if anything is genuinely good in me, where did it come from? It was a gift. So how am I boasting in something that I didn't even do? Right? So viewing others through the lens of their flaws is doubting the power of the gospel for them. Because really, what are we doing? We're saying, well, you look at all these problems. Look at all these things that are wrong with them. As if the gospel is unable to change them. That's the danger of falling into the trap the Bible Belt trap of thinking that um, you were once not a Christian and now you are a Christian, but thankfully you never were that bad. Maybe you're not a Christian <laughs> if you think that. Oh, you were bad. In fact, you were so bad it's not a bad competition. You were so wicked 
that God had to slay his son in order to make forgiveness available to you. Forget everybody else. Yeah. So we can just slay that idea that somehow we just didn't get that bad. Oh, yes, we did. It still required the shed blood of God in order to redeem. It was that bad, right? Sure. Okay. What about the Bible as textbook? Which uh, seems pretty straightforward, but it's a little more tricky than it seems. So the danger here is when believers begin to measure their spiritual growth by how much they know. This is, uh, you know, a more uh, obvious, visible problem that you would, you know, especially in a place like this. Because you know more, you're growing. But that's not how the Bible works. That's not... That's not a true statement. The more you know, the more mature you are. Normally, those things would go together, but only if we understood how that happens. See, when it comes to the Bible, the value of what we know is found in what we do with it. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So all the, like, for example, if you were reading through the book of Proverbs and you were looking at all the warnings to the foolish people and all the, uh, you know, and all the, the, the truth and wisdom for the wise. Well, what is a fool? A fool is not somebody who doesn't know. A fool is someone who knows and doesn't use it. And doesn't do it. That's what a fool is. In order to be a fool, you have to know. If you don't know, you're just ignorant. So foolish people know. So knowing doesn't make you mature. Knowing doesn't equate to spiritual growth automatically. John chapter 5, Jesus said, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's talking to the Pharisees who devote their lives to knowing the words of God. That's what their, their whole life is devoted to. And yet, He says, you don't even have any life. So we got to understand that the Bible's not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. That's where the, that's the whole point. Again, I can just, somebody can just read something and mentally, I mean, here's the thing. If you gave me a textbook on brain surgery, and you just gave me a, give me a couple days and a textbook on brain surgery. I guarantee you, I would, you'd be hard pressed for somebody to 
figure out I wasn't a brain surgeon. I'd, le- I'd learn how to talk the talk. The problem is, is that when you hand me a scalpel, now we got a problem. I can learn the lingo. I could study that book for a few days, and I could talk like I knew all what I was talking about, couldn't I? And you could come to me, and you could say, I really want to know something about brain surgery. And I'd start talking, and you'd be going, wow. I mean, I can't even cut a watermelon straight. You don't want me whacking on your brain. That's going to be a problem. Not to mention the fact that I'm going to get a little queasy. See, so what I'm saying is, is that it's the same thing with the Bible. You can, you can just intellectually study it like a textbook, but there's no life in you. It's, it's the, the transformation. The Pharisees were utterly committed to Scripture. They were utterly familiar with what, what the Old Testament said and what God's law was. and They constantly read it, constantly heard it. They never missed church. They were always in the synagogue, always listening to sermons. I mean, think about how devoted they were. But they didn't. They knew them, but they didn't know them. They, they knew words, but it wasn't in their heart. They hadn't experienced it. They didn't get it. They missed the whole thing. There was no, they didn't know the power of God that's in the living word. They didn't know. So how should we approach the Bible? That's really the most important thing we need to figure out, right? We need to come to the Bible as a mirror. That's what it is. That's how the Bible describes itself. That's how I know that. That's what it is. So when you get to the Bible... You approach it like a mirror, and here's what it does. It, it shows us who God is, what He wants, and how we measure up. That's exactly what it does. Exactly. Because those are, that, those are the things that we need to know. See, I need to know a few things. I need to know who God is. I need to know what He cares about. I need to know... I need to know what, what makes him tick. I need to, I need to have some understanding of, of who is this God? What does he want? What is he about? What, you know, what's, what's he trying to accomplish? And then I need to, I need to know, because even if I know the first one and I know the second one, I have to know Where am I in this picture? See, I have to know that. And and anybody who is born again, the way they got born again, what happens to us that leads us to salvation is we recognize some things about God. We realize how awesome God is and how good God is, but we also realize our need for Him. If you just realize how good God is, but you don't know that you need Him, which is how you measure up, right? It would do no good. It's the kindness of God in the, in the realization that we don't know Him that leads us to repentance. Yes. So see, 
It's a mirror that's, that's going to peer in and give us some indication about. Because I'm telling you, there are people who treat the Bible like a textbook. They can espouse verbally to you who God is and what God wants. But they have no clue of where they are, where they measure up, how they measure up. They, that's, that's the missing ingredient. They don't know that. They think they're fine. They think they're fine. So when we take the Bible out, when you sit down in front of the Bible and you open the Bible up, you, you want to look intently into it and think about a mirror. Resist the temptation to be reading something. And look, it's fine to read something and think about people that you care about and that you love and that you know about people you're discipling, people you're married to, your children, people you fellowship with, whatever. That's fine. But resist the temptation to do that initially. You can come back to that. Initially, when you open the Bible, it's you peering into this mirror. What does this say about me? What does this say about me? See, I think that you can that a lot of religious people who get caught in this, um, their life seems to be this endless sort of ring around the rosy game. They just keep getting in the same cycles of destruction. They just keep, you know, going around the same. It's just the same repetitive. You know, it gets good for a little while, and then it gets bad again, and then it's good for a minute, and then it's bad again. And then it's, you know, and it just, something's wrong. And, and in that moment, am I the only one that's thinking, even if I don't know what to do, I know this. We can't keep doing the same thing. Clearly, that's wrong, Right? And here's the problem. I think so many people in that situation, they're spiritual, and they just keep... And so what they do is they just think that they must not be trying hard enough, or they must not be... You know, so, so what it is, is it's like if, if, I'm ta- if I take these vitamins and it makes me feel a little bit better, then I should take more and I'll feel even better. So... What I'm doing works a minute, then doesn't work. Works a minute, then doesn't work. Which is really what? Not working at all. Or can we disagree? It's not working at all. So more of that is going to not work even more. Even if it makes the, the upswings longer. Like even if it takes the same, if it just stretches out the cycle. What have we really accomplished? Nothing. But if we go to the Bible and we say something's wrong with me, it's wrong with me. Before you call me or talk to your D group leader, why don't you ask the Bible, ask God, what's wrong with me? Show me what's wrong with me. Read the Bible as a mirror and say, God, what is, what is going on with me? What's the problem? Because here's what I know. 
I know, I, I still don't know what the problem is, but I know certain things. I know what I'm doing is not working, right? I mean, I'm just being, let's just make it real simple. We know that what we're doing is not working. What else do we know? We know where the problem lies. How do we know that? Because there's only two parties here, me and God. The problem's not with him. So I'm pretty sure we can all agree it's with me, right? So we know what we're doing is not working. We know there's a problem, and we know with whom the problem lies. So we've basically, we're on our way to solution, aren't we? We've worked, we haven't even talked to anybody yet, and we've already figured all this out. Like I've talked to people that have been decades of this and haven't even gotten that far. Like so, okay, so what are we doing? Well, and I'm like, well, isn't that what you've been doing? Well, yeah. That sounds sensible to you? Like you thought to yourself, yeah, I think this time it's going to. No, it's not. No, it isn't. It's not going to. Something's wrong with you. And the solution is here. Now, I might not know where it is, or I might not know what it is, but I know, I know the problem. I know what I'm doing is not working. I know where the problem lies, and I even know where the solution is. So now, if I'm reading the Bible with that sense of urgency, and that, that the mindset of, and here's the thing, what if you come to the Bible with that sense of urgency um, for somebody else? I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that that never works because, sure, it works sometimes. It, it's going to have to do with, you know, your motivation and your, your what is the true thoughts and intentions of your heart and so on and so forth. I mean, you know, but still, I don't think there's anything as powerful as an individual person recognizing we need the Bible. We need God. We need to... We need him to show, I need him to show me and me and him getting alone, getting by ourselves, and sorting things out. Yeah. You know that, uh, the, the passage in the uh, Gospels where uh, the disciples are in the boat and they get to the other side, and they're, uh, they're instantly end up face-to-face with the demoniac of Gadara, and he's in the graveyard, and he's running around naked, and he's, Bible says he's, he's taking rocks, and he's cutting himself, and he's bleeding everywhere, you know what I mean? And, and Jesus casts all the demons into the pigs, and they jump off the cliff into the water. Sometimes I think about that demoniac. And I, I, think about, I, I think about all the ways that I'm like him. It's like him. Like I, 
when I met Christ, when he saved me, I was easily as messed up as that guy. I don't look at him and go, man, that guy was, I go, yeah, I know that guy. But then I also look at the way I'm like him today. I, I think about him running around, you know, cuts all over and bleeding. And sometimes I think to myself, before I get to what does this text mean for the people that I'm going to talk to, I kind of feel like the slashed up guy bleeding everywhere. Like that's what the text does to me before I can give it to you. That's what it does. In other words, I mean, it, there's, it just, the Holy Spirit's not in. Let me just, you know, read 20 commentaries and figure out what all the technical things that are going on here is and then give you all the information so that you understand what the text says. There's no power in that. But if it slashed me all up, then I, then I can speak from a, a position of authority and understanding and, and knowledge because what I want is I want it to slash you up. That's what I want. It sounds bad, but it's really good. And here's the thing, because that's what you need, because that's what I need. So I don't go, God, slash me up so I can slash them up. I go, God, slash me up because I need to be slashed up. Then I can share it. But even if I'm not sharing, I still need it, right? And so if you come to church, like how do you come to church? I mean, what happens? So what happens when you come to church with the mindset of, you know, what are, what are you thinking when you're coming to church? What's your motivation? Like, what, you, as you're walking through the door, what, are you thinking things like, oh, man, I hope the, uh, they sing songs I like, or I hope the music's how I like, or I hope Tony's wound up and funny today, or I hope, like, what are you thinking? What's your mindset? I mean, are you, who's thinking, and I'm coming in here, I hope I get slashed up today because I need it. do i mean that's what's that's what that's what this is this what this gift is for that's the purpose and like if if everything just bounces off of you like you might as well be home binging netflix it's it's not it's the same thing you're just killing minutes the truth. And just as a mirror reflects what we look like on the outside, God's Word reflects what you're like on the inside. That's how you know who you are. That's how you know what's wrong with you is because you're, you're looking at. See, see, sometimes I look in the mirror, right? 
just in the, a regular mirror, which is, can be not so joyful, right? So I look in the mirror. Let's suppose I look in the mirror and I realize that I have peanut butter on my face. I'm not saying that's ever happened. I'm just saying it's a possibility. And I look in the mirror and I see peanut butter on my face, right? Now, what has the mirror done? The mirror has brought to my attention the reality that I have peanut butter on my face that prior to looking in the mirror, I had no knowledge of, right? Now, because if I had knowledge of it, I would have wiped it off. So the fact that it's still there proves that I didn't have knowledge of it. So I've looked in the mirror, and I've seen that I have peanut butter on my face. The mirror illustrates the fact that the reality of the peanut butter on my face, it gives me the reality that I have a need. But you know what the mirror has no power to do? Wipe the peanut butter off. I have to do that. The mirror just merely brought to my attention that it's there. But then I have to respond to what the mirror showed me. That's what reading the Bible is like. That's exactly how this works. Which is why we have to, we can't finish this conversation until we have this final piece because this is the piece that puts it all together. We have to understand obedience. We have to understand what, what do we do when we look in the mirror and the mirror reflects reality that we were otherwise unaware of. How does that work? See, the Bible teaches that God rewards obedience. That's 100% true. He does. But that's not all that's true. If you look into the mirror of Scripture, you'll see that God rewards obedience, but you'll also see other things. You'll also see that it teaches that God will not allow us to find pride in our obedience. Will not. Now, this is a delicate thing here because on one hand, I look in the mirror, I see that I have peanut butter, I wipe the peanut butter off my face. Now, I walk away from the mirror thinking, I no longer have peanut butter on my face because I wiped it off. See, if it was still me and me alone, I would still be walking around like a bozo with peanut butter on my face. The mirror is the only thing that enabled me to be able to execute that action, right? So if you feel pride in your obedience, the whole thing is derailed. Now, I know what you're thinking to yourself, like, well, okay, but I don't think that's that earth-shattering. I don't think that I you know, struggle with that. Okay, let's look at this passage in Luke 17 and see. Will any of you 
who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I remember the first time I ever read this passage. And it slashed me up like a demoniac, like nothing else. I'm going, what in the world is Jesus saying here? It's almost like he's saying, Shame on you for doing the right thing. He's saying the servant that comes in from working hard and doing what he was supposed to be doing, when he comes in, is the master going to say, Hey, great job. Come and sit down and recline at the table with me. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. And Jesus says, Eh. Jesus said, no, the master's going to say, yo, bro, cook me some dinner. What? What is going on here? Well, like it or not, according to Jesus, a servant who obeys has done nothing special. That's what he's saying. He's saying all you've done is what you're supposed to do. Now, we don't like this. This is a slasher right here. All you've done is, you know, I got in hot water. uh, Well, you know, it happens. I got in hot water during COVID a lot of times. But remember on the backside of COVID when when I wasn't preaching to puppets and uh, for a couple weeks and, and, uh, So I had a real, you know, I made this statement about how um, there was all these, this big movement to making everybody a hero, right? All our healthcare heroes and all of our this hero and that hero and And I simply made the point, are you really a hero? Man, I'm grateful and I want to celebrate you, but I'm just real, I'm just being real. Boy, people got mad when I said this. I said, now, when you went to nursing school, did you think you were going to work on well people? Is that what you thought? You didn't get the memo that that calling is to care for sick people? Whatever's wrong with them, right? Isn't that what doctors are supposed to do? Isn't that why hospitals exist? So suddenly now, doing what you're supposed to do makes you a hero. And I get the reason why that happened is because the people who were supposed to do that, that refused to do that, no, they ought to have a sign. You're a traitor. Because you signed up to be a 
a, a nurse and then decided you weren't going to help sick people. That's a traitor. Or you were going to be a hospital that weren't going to care for sick people. That's a traitor. See what I'm saying? Yeah, I know you don't get it, but that's what I get. I mean, you're like going, I'm not agreeing with that. People are going to get mad about that. I don't care. I'm just simply saying, like, yes, congratulations. I love you. I pray for you. Great job. But it is your job. In other words, people would say to me, like, well, you know, I don't know, man. It's COVID. Like, are you going to go in the hospital and visit them? What do you think? Yes. That's what I'm doing. Well, what if you get a COVID? Well, then I get COVID. That's my job. Right? I'm not a hero because I do. That'd be like, look, Pastor Tony, you're a hero. You preach the gospel. Something's wrong if that's the case. Right? I'm just saying. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what is so hard to, to, to deal with here. He's like, if you just obey, you're doing nothing special. See, all Jesus is pointing out is that the servant did his job. Now, is it true that there, we, I, could, I could show you other parables where Jesus paints the picture between obedience and disobedience, and he shows that obedience is always better than disobedience? Always. Always. But allowing obedience to turn into spiritual pride? In other words, you thinking you did something great because you did your job? The Bible has a major problem with that. Jesus had a problem with that. We don't get this. That's why we got to look at it like a mirror. In other words, let me help you because I know you're confused. Let me, let me help you. What, what Jesus is saying in this parable is the same thing as my kid coming home from school and saying, Dad, you need to buy me a new bicycle today. And I say, oh, really? And why is that? And they say, because today I didn't cheat on my test. That's what it is. Because I'd say, look, fool, your job is to not cheat on your test. And if you get caught cheating on your test, a bicycle is going to be the last thing you're worried about. So don't be coming in here talking about I need to be rewarded for doing my job. That's your job, right? It's the same thing. That's what Jesus is talking about this servant. Yeah, but we get wrapped up in, man, they're out there plowing in the field and working all day and doing. You know, sometimes I forget this principle. And it's been a little while since I've been slashed up by it. So I come home after a hard day at work. And I feel like, man, I just deserve a little extra treatment today because I did my job. Because let me tell you something. When God called me to be a pastor, I really thought it was going to be smooth sailing easy. So, you know, newsflash, 
I have to remind myself when I pull up in the driveway, hey, fool, all you did is your job. Suck it up and go in there and play with your kids. You're not, you don't get a trophy because you did your job. That's what the world does. That's not what the Bible does. All right, so let's, let's pull all this together. So what do we ask these questions? Why do so many Christians find Jesus' view of obedience offensive? It's offensive. At least most people find it discouraging because you feel like, man, all these things I've been obeying in, and he's just like, woohoo, that's your job. And a lot of people find it offensive. Why? Why do so many Christians find pride in their above-average obedience? Oh, look at me. Man, look at what I... Man, I mean, I'm busting my tail for the Lord. I read my Bible every day. Ah, man, I spent so and such amount of time in prayer. I did this or I did that. What, what causes this? Because it's a very simple yet elusive seemingly answer. The answer is because of a fundamental misunderstanding of what God's commands are. See, here's what you got. The, the, the servant that comes in from a hard day's work and, wants, and expects the master to say, man, have a seat, kick it up, let's drink some iced tea and relax a minute. You've been really busting it today. What is the disconnect? The servant doesn't know his job description. See, he doesn't know that in his job it says, you serve the master all day while the sun's up or whatever it is. You're not off the clock when you come in off the field. You see, he doesn't know that the whistle hadn't blown yet. That's why he's disappointed. If, you got, if your job description is skewed, well, you're going to be a big wreck all the time. And what is your job description? How do you know what your job description is? The commands of the Bible are your job description. So you better know what your job description is. You better know what those commands are and what they mean. You better know that because if you don't, there's going to be confusion. You're going to get twisted up about what's, you know, you're going to be thinking you're doing a good job when you're not. You're going to be thinking that you're going the extra mile when you're not. You're going to be all tangled up about all kinds of things. You're going to be discouraged because you want a pat on the back when you don't get it. I mean, you're going to come home. Sometimes I come home and I want the sign in my yard that says, Tony is a hero. But yet it never seems to make it there. But I want it there. You see? It doesn't, it doesn't, that's not my job description. So here's what happens. What happens is we get to a place where we lose track and we think. Just let the suspense kill you. <laughs> this is what we think. We believe that God's commands are difficult and burdensome. 
and it opens the door for all sorts of problems. See, do you know why? Do you know why I get in the delusion of what a hard day I've had? I want to go in here and Lisa should have dinner all out on the table. And as I'm eating, she can rub my feet as I'm eating. And my kids can fan me as I'm doing this. You know why I think that? It's 100% predicated on my idea of how difficult my job was or my day is. Right? See, sometimes I do my job and I'm worn out and tired and burnt out. And sometimes I do my job and I'm not. But what I forget is they're both my job. But I think this is some extra level of something, right? And so what we do is we think God's commands are difficult and burdensome. And then guess what? As soon as you believe that lie, you are going down a rabbit hole of pain right there. That's wrong. That's false. Oh, I, I mean, it was so hard and I just had to, I just w- w- had to grip my teeth and fight and fight and fight to obey God. Huh? That doesn't even make any sense. That's not true. You're, you, you, just, you just called the Bible a liar. That's not what the Bible says. What does the job description say? Obey my commands. And what does the job description say about the commands? Well, a lot of things. It says in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Hmm. That's what it says. So you know what that means? We can't say they're burdensome. If we do, we're lying. Right? Isn't that right? Okay. That's just the first step. The second step is not only are they not burdensome, but God also gives us both the will and the power to obey. He does the whole thing. The whole thing. I come home. I want to see the hero sign. I'm ready for everybody to go, oh, man, you had such a hard day. And God gave me the will and the power to do everything that I did. And if I did something that he didn't give me the will and power to do, I shouldn't have been doing it. Right? Isn't that true? So, checkmate. I'm locked in. I'm an idiot. I admit it. I'm wrong. I repent. I don't need a hero sign. I just did my job. And I'm super grateful I got the opportunity to do that. Philippians 2, For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So if it wasn't his will and it wasn't his work, then you shouldn't have been doing it. Isn't that right? That's right. That means whatever your job is, if you're saved, God's given you the will and the power to do it to his good pleasure. Is that what that means? I'm telling you, man, this is a game changer right here. See, we got to realize 
that obedience is not above and beyond the call of duty. It is the call of duty. It is. Like, what do you mean? Congratulations, you obeyed God. What was the alternative? Jonah? Huh? I mean... Basically, whatever it is going on in your life, you're a Christian. Whatever fork you come to in your life. I mean, I'm just, I'm just a simpleton. I don't know. Some of y'all are super smart. That's not me. I'm very simple. I come to a fork in the road, and this is what I know. I, I can go, I can obey God, or I can take a hammer and smash my finger. That's what it is. Because if I choose to disobey God, it is literally smashing my finger with a hammer, which is, you know, a sign of total insanity, I'm just saying. But that's what it is. There's, it, I, there's zero chance it's going to work. There's zero chance it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring about anything good. It's only going to bring pain. But yet I'm going to do this anyway. But somehow, we choose to obey God, and we want a trophy and a cookie to go with it. Which is how I got the peanut butter on my face in the first place. Just saying. See, when you get this realization down, you realize this is why Obedience, it, it kills the temptation to puff up with pride and look down at other people who are still struggling. Why? Because I haven't done anything great. I, why am I, 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 the only way I can look down at other people is I have to think I've done something great. But if all I've done is my job, that's all I've done then who am I looking down on? People who are trying to do their job? At least they're trying. You see how it just levels out the playing field? How it just brings everything down into the proper perspective? Once we comprehend that we've done nothing special, then there's nothing to boast about. We don't have anything to boast about. See, when, when somebody comes to you and they need spiritual help, somebody comes to me and they need spiritual help, here's what I remember. I remember that Jesus never considered himself too spiritual to help people. And he was perfect. And so since I'm a million miles from perfect, I got time to have a conversation. I got time to talk about your thing. I got because your thing's not that far from my thing. It's really not. God bless you for trying to do your job because you know what? Every day I'm just trying to do my job. So we're kind of in the same boat, aren't we? It's not like some of us are in some spiritual ivory tower looking down on everybody else. No. 
So four ways you can undo spiritual pride real quick, and then we're done. Number one, pray for humility. See, when you, when you pray for humility, God doesn't give you humility. You know what he gives you? Opportunities to be humble. That's how humility comes. You don't pray, God, make me humble. Wake up the next day and go, look at there, I'm humble. Let's hope that doesn't happen because then we got a whole bigger problem. Now, opportunities come. The second thing is give grace. Be a grace dispenser. You know, so somebody's wronged you, hurt you, whatever the case may be is, pray for them. Somebody's aggravating you. Somebody's causing pain in your life. Somebody's hurting you. Pray for them. Pray for them. Be big on reliance. Big. God calls us to complete dependence, but it's not a passive dependence. It's an active dependence. We actively rely upon Him. That's what we do. And what happens is, is that we respond in obedience. And here's the beautiful thing about the reliance is, is that it, it takes all the pressure off. The, the outcome's not on me. See? I obey, and then what happens after that? It's ain't got nothing to do with me. Pressure's off. But if I go my way, now everything, now, see, whatever happens is on me. So God made an easier way, but somehow we, we, we made it seem harder. But it's easier. It's not harder. And then we want to be a student. I mean, just you, you, every day you wake up, you want to learn. You want to be a student. And here's what it means. It means that we're all different. And we're all, we all need and learn different things in different ways from different perspectives because we've grown up and experienced different things. So we bring so much different perspectives to the table that I always have things to learn from you. And you always have things to learn from each other. We learn from each other. I learn from listening to you and watching you. Sometimes I learn what not to do, but I'm still learning. Still learning. I want to learn every day. I want to learn. So what is, let's commit ourselves to reset how we use the Bible and how we view obedience to God. And see what happens. Approach the Bible as a mirror. And think about your obedience in terms of what your job description actually is. Stop looking for the hero sign. It ain't there. And listen, it shouldn't be there. There's only, there's a, so this, this is a true story. So in my little imaginary, you know, psychosis of I had such a hard day and everybody in my house should understand when I walk in the door and there should be a sign when I pull up says Tony's the hero. I tell myself when I pull on the driveway, I need to get a sign. But it says Jesus is the hero. 
He's the hero. He's the only hero of the story. I don't ever want to be the hero. He's the hero. Let's pray. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for being the hero of our salvation. And Lord, we just want to...